Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Episode 95 of Suncast. They said, John, you, you might want to take a seat for this one. John, we think you might have something like really big here, like potentially could be like a billion dollar company, right? He goes, but the problem is it's going to take minimum another $75 million before you see revenue, let alone profitability. And John is just pissed. He's just like, are you guys serious? You're serious right now. You want me to throw down another $75 million. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Welcome to Suncast. I'm your host, Nico Johnson. And every week, Suncast provides tomorrow's clean tech leaders with insight and ammunition to carry you through your daily battles. Thank you for tuning in and get ready for your weekly mental tune-up. If you're a regular listener, you know I am honored to have you back. And if you're a new listener, I'm equally grateful that you're here checking us out. And I'd encourage you to take a look at some of the other amazing interviews with solar leaders like Jigger Shaw, Dan Sugar, Ed Fio, Stephen Lacey, the list goes on. And speaking of past episodes, did you get to hear the Tactical Tuesday episode earlier this week? It's all about maximizing your time at InterSolar North America. I've been getting some awesome feedback, including that the content is still very relevant for Solar Power International and many other industry events. But it's very timely if you are, in fact, headed to San Francisco and going to InterSolar North America. It's chock full of action items for you list makers and action takers out there. And since I know that you'll be equipped to network a little bit better, I'd love to invite you to attend a networking event that I'm hosting in San Francisco for the Solar Tribe, along with my friends at Green Power Global. If you're working in Latin America or are just even curious about what's going on down there, this will be a not-to-miss event of the movers and shakers and action takers that are making projects happen in the Latin America market. So head to mysuncast.com for details and registration. And while you are there, be sure to sign up for my email list so you don't miss out on this and many other important announcements moving forward. This month, we are bringing a new sponsor to Suncast, and I am really grateful for the cast and crew over at Chent Power Systems, also known as CPS America. They're the USA market share leader of three-phase string inverters with over two gigawatts shipped in America. CPS is known for feature-rich, high-performance inverters and its nimble service team supporting CNI and utility applications. Now, if you are worried about your current inverter supplier or just stuck with legacy leaders, take a look at CPS. They're investing in America, and you can count on them. And as Ed Heacox pointed out in the last episode, 
They have the largest booth at InterSolar North America. So swing by and say hi and tell them you heard it on Suncast. Well, today on Suncast, I get to spend time with one of the young guns in our industry who inspires me with his insight, knowledge, heart, and grit. Kyle Cherick has had the good fortune of jumping into some real titans of the solar industry straight out of college. How many of you would love to have joined First Solar six months after its IPO? or moved on from there to Axio Power, becoming one of the fabled exits selling to Sun Edison. Kyle got a front row view to all this and more. Barely in his 30s, he's already accomplished a great deal, and I always learn from Kyle when we get to hang out. So I wanted to bring that experience to you. In fact, as we got into recording, it became crystal clear to me that there are actually two episodes here. The pre-entrepreneur wins and failures that set him up for his career and his subsequent time in solar startups, both as an investor and a founder. So tune in to this part one to learn how a job interview at General Mills turned Kyle towards the solar industry, how Kyle's clear goals and intentions earned him a spot at the table of what would become not one, but two of the largest companies in the solar industry in the 2000s. A behind-the-scenes look at the founding of First Solar from his own first-hand encounter. And how Kyle pivoted from corporate success story to startup investor and founder while keeping his full-time job. All right, Solar Warrior. Thanks again for setting aside this time in your day. Please enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with another serial entrepreneur and my friend, Kyle Cherick. All right, Solar Warriors, if you love some of the earlier episodes that we've had with guys like Paul Grana and Adam Gerza, you are going to really enjoy today's episode. Got my buddy Kyle Cherick on today. And Kyle, if you're not familiar with him, is a 10-year solar industry veteran. He's experienced startup and corporate life, both with industry leaders like First Solar and Sun Edison and Chent Power. And he currently leads business development for a startup called Pick My Solar. He's worked in industry partnerships, growth strategies, strategic marketing. But he's also one of the young entrepreneurs that I admire most in solar, though he may not know it. And today, you're going to find out why. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Hey, thanks for having me, Nico. I'm excited to be here. Not as excited as I am, man, because I get to pick your brain instead of your solar, and I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So listen, you know how we always do this. I'd love to hear a bit about the backstory of how you got into solar. Yours is particularly interesting. You like to say that you broke into the solar industry, and you've done so in what I consider to be some spectacular ways. Will you give me a bit of insight. Help us understand your first exposure to the solar power industry. And really, how did you know this is where you wanted to focus your career? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. So I had uh, I'd gone to the University of Arizona specifically to study entrepreneurship. Uh, they had the number two ranked program in the country when I was looking at schools and I was excited to be down there. 
moved around a lot as a kid, but ended up in the Seattle area. So this was uh, this was a big jump for me coming down to Arizona and the, the Southwest. But I was uh, about halfway through and got you know kind of pulled into one of those competitive interviewing processes for a pretty well-regarded internship with General Mills, the cereal company. You know, this is one of those things where they like fly to 10 schools and interview like 200 kids and they bring the the finalists to their regional headquarters in Scottsdale. And so I got invited to that. And the night before this all day interview at their offices, I'm up until four o'clock in the morning, I kid you not, reading about renewable energy. Like, cause that was just what I was interested in. Huh. And I go in the next day and I'm shadowing this recent graduate who works for General Mills and she goes, so this is how General Mills performs in the frozen food pastry category compared to its competitors. And I was like, oh my God, shoot me now. I don't care. Like clearly <laughs> this is like, this is not where I need to be. This is so, not entrepreneurship. Yeah. So I said, okay, you know, clearly wind and solar is, is kind of what's piquing my interest. And so I put together a cover letter and resume custom for every company I was interested in and sent them in a big fat manila envelope they couldn't ignore when they got it in the mail. And I sent it off to probably 10 or so companies and, and got two or three kind of quick responses. And, and then out of the blue, you know, like two months later, First Solar calls me. And to be clear, you know, they didn't have a job posting and I hadn't even actually applied to them. And then, uh, you know, I, I'd heard about their IPO and then I look and, you know, they didn't have any job postings for, for interns, but I just sent them one and they called me like, Hey, we got this, this, uh, you know, this package and, uh, we need an intern. Um, so I went in and, and chatted with them and, and worked there. And, and that was just a really crazy time to be there because they had IPO December of 2016 sorry, December 2006, I was there the summer of 2007. So I literally attended the very first earnings call that they ever had. And there was like literally five people in the room. And then that year, 2007, the stock was number one on NASDAQ. It went up 800%. So it was kind of a crazy time to be there and, and just to learn a little bit, you know, about where the industry was headed. Talk about timing. That is, uh, you know, not only fortuitous, but what a wonderful experience to be at a company like First Solar at a time when not only that company, but our industry was at the beginning of that hockey stick curve. And I understand you spent some time in the sales and marketing team uh, working with one of the sort of longtime executives, Ken Schultz there. Any interesting insights into how First Solar came about or, or anything you learned from working under such an industry icon? Yeah. I mean, you know, I was certainly, of course, uh, quite a few levels below uh, working with Ken, but I got to spend a little bit of time with him. You know, we went out to lunch one day and I kind of asked similarly to you're asking, I said, you know, how'd you get into First Solar? Hmm. And he kind of told me the real, you know, founding story of First Solar. So pretty interesting, actually. So 1991, this little company in Toledo, Ohio gets started called Solar Cells Inc. Uh-huh. Uh, they're just doing early stage R&D on you know, new solar technologies. And Toledo, if you're not familiar, is famous for being a glass town for the auto business. And so there's you know, a whole industry in that, that area of glass manufacturing and all this stuff. And so you know, naturally, you can see the correlation there. The original founder of Solar Cells Inc. was doing Cadmium Telluride research and, and trying to make, see if he could make a module out of a glass-on-glass CAD-TEL formula. Yeah. 1999, John Walton, the son of Sam Walton of Walmart, 
is running his little, you know, family venture firm with a few hundred million dollars in assets under management. And he buys Solar Cells Inc. And he says, hey, this is kind of interesting. I'm, I like what you guys are doing here. And he buys the company. Well, two years into his investment, right, he's, he's, he bought the company in 99. But by 2001, he has sank $75 million of, you know, his family and, and his funds money into this company. And they have no line of sight to revenue, let alone profitability. Like they're still trying to get their very first pilot manufacturing plant built and they are struggling. So John calls in Mike Ahern, who's his attorney friend, and uh, he calls in Ken Schultz, who's this kind of all-star MBA engineer guy on the biz dev side. And he, he calls these guys and he's like, guys, you know, I'm $75 million into this thing. I don't know if I should just wipe my hands and walk away. You know, should I keep going with this thing? Will you guys just come in and just fully scrub this thing and tell me, you know, what you think we should do? And so... Mike and Ken, you know, they go to work, right? They, they, they dig into the books and they look at, uh, you know, the management and the strategy and the technology and the market size and everything. They do a whole project on it. And they come back to John and they say, John, you, you might want to take a seat for this one. Uh, John, we think you might have something like really big here, like potentially could be like a billion dollar company, right? Crazy idea. This could be a billion dollar company. He goes, but the problem is it's going to take minimum another $75 million before you see revenue, let alone profitability. And John is just pissed. He's just like, are you guys serious? You're serious right now. Like, you want me to throw down another $75 million. So he goes away and he huffs and he puffs and he sleeps on it for a couple of weeks and he calls him back in and he says, screw you guys. I'm all in. Let's do this. Mike, you're the CEO. Ken, you're the VP of sales and marketing. Go freaking build this company. And they do. And they spend the next three years just trying to get their pilot manufacturing line going. Around this time, 2004, a guy that I later worked for uh, at Axio Power, Kevin Christie, is really starting to get excited about this technology and what they're doing and some of the things they're working on. And so he's specking their technology on all these, you know, really big solar projects in the mid 2000s, like 750 kilowatts and a megawatt uh, for like an Odwalla distribution center and all kinds of, you know, stuff like that. And Ken Schultz calls him while Kevin is running on the beach in Huntington Beach. And he says, Kevin, pull all your bids. I just sold everything I have for the next three years into Germany. And it's because there was a mass, you know, German market took off with the feed-in tariffs in the mid-2000s. There was a massive supply shortage of crystalline silicon modules. And First Solar had just dialed in their first pilot manufacturing line. And they financed the next three expansions of their manufacturing line on forward contracts that they'd sold into Germany for the next three years. Jeez. Kevin at the time, well, I think we'll probably get into that for sure. But Kevin at the time was running a company called Axio. Well, at the time he was at three phases, which was uh, uh, doing distributed solar before Axio got started. Got it. So Kevin at three phases at the time had presumably a procurement agreement with First Solar for some of their early production panels. Yeah, I don't think they had fully, you know, inked a contract yet, but basically he was specking them in all his deals. He was basically said, hey, love the product, love the pricing. I'm going to include you as our standard for you know, all our designs and all Very of our, cool. our stuff. And then Ken calls him and says, yeah, you got to pull all that stuff. I don't have anything to sell you because you're not under contract. Unbelievable. Well, at the risk of making this all about First Solar 
and not about the rest of your career. I'm going to move along, but it certainly gives folks a lot of juicy questions, I'm sure, to ask you the next time they hang out with you at InterSolar or SPI. You mentioned Kevin Christie, who I also, thanks to your introduction, hope to have on the show soon. Tell me about how you met Kevin. I think that's a pretty interesting story as well. Yeah, it is. It is. So back at University of Arizona and the entrepreneurship program, they had sponsored me to, because uh, I was writing a business plan on utility scale solar development in 2007, back when that industry really didn't exist. In, Wait a in minute, let's pause there. Where did you get the idea that you needed to write a business plan about utility scale solar development? Well, so, you know, leaving first solar in that conversation with Ken, I saw that, okay, I was working on the manufacturing side as an intern there. And they were selling to developers. And I kind of said to Ken, you know, I think I'm more interested in the project development side of the business than, than the OEM side at the time. And he said, yeah, I get that. He said, you know, I, we've thought about starting that business a couple times. We've almost pulled <laughs> the trigger, trigger a couple times. So I went back to U of A where I started my official entrepreneurship program and formed a team that was writing a business plan on utility scale, solar, photovoltaic project development in 2007 when literally it was like, you know, the Nellis project was like the only project in it. And I think was, you know, in construction at the time. Right. But first solar was selling to all these German project developers. And, you know, it's like every week they'd turn on another, you know, 10 megawatt project, 20 wow. megawatt projects. And it was always, you know, the world's largest project just got built. And, you know, I think we turned on that summer, they turned on like a 44 megawatt project. And it literally was, you know, the world's largest photovoltaic project. Yeah. And this is around the time as well that PowerLight is expanding into Europe. And uh, just prior to Powerlight being acquired by SunPower, I mean, what a great time to be cutting your teeth. Yeah. So I had gone to SPI in Long Beach in 2007. I think it was like the second or third year they had the SPI show. Yeah. You know, it was actually a pretty small show. Uh, you know, you could, you could meet a lot of people pretty quickly. You meet all the top people in the industry because was, everybody was all in the same room, you know? Yeah. So I'd come back and, and Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who represented Tucson at the time, in Congress, you know, she was a big solar proponent. She held a town hall asking people that, that were in touch with her that had gone to SPI to come back and share what you'd learned with people in Tucson so that they could, you know, bring some of that learnings. And so I sat on a panel and shared some of the insights that we had. And towards the end of the meeting, in the back of the room, in walks uh, these guys I didn't know at the time named uh, Kevin Christie and, and Will Plaxico. The Congresswoman's staffer kind of makes a point to give them the mic and introduce them and ask them to share a little bit about what they're doing. And it was funny because I, I distinctly remember that it was like they kind of talked about what they were doing, but they also kind of didn't talk about what they were doing because at the time they were still kind of in stealth mode where they were trying to acquire sites and not really tip off their hat too much as to what they were trying to do. But I was like, wait a second. I think I know what these guys are up to, you know. So I, I kind of flagged them down in the parking lot and talked to them a little bit. And then I saw Will again a few months later at a, another kind of renewable energy conference in, in Phoenix. And he said, hey, you know, we're just about to close a round of funding. You know, you should come talk with our CEO. And I think at the time it was literally just Tim, Kevin, and Will, who I think at the time may have not even been on salary yet. So I reached out to Tim we had a great conversation and he kind of said, you know, well, you know, do you ever come out to, you know, Southern California? And I was just like, you know, I'll find a way to get out there. You know, let's, let's sit down in a couple of weeks and just went out there and continue the conversation. And so I was able to join them because we basically literally had the same exact business plan. It was, you know, utility scale solar development, mostly in the Southwest, tying up land and interconnection and, and selling power to the utilities from solar photovoltaic, which was, was a brand new concept. I want to, talk about you've been through one of the very early 
sale processes in the industry and then subsequently went through your own, which I'm sure was in, you were was informed by the things that you had seen there. We're going to fast forward through what was the growth of one of the early important development companies in the industry. Maybe we'll have a follow-up just about how Axio became what it became. But perhaps you can give us a little bit of insight into not how to grow a successful development company, but Axio ended up selling to at the time, a company that itself wasn't particularly very strong in the industry. But when, as I recall, the Axio acquisition by Sun Edison really positioned Sun Edison well. And it also, in my mind, at the time being in the industry, looking at what was happening from the outside, it made Sun Edison look very strong in the industry to acquire a company like Axio, to bring on a team like Tim and Kevin and you and Will. Can you tell me a bit about that experience from the inside looking out? Yeah, there's definitely a lot there, but Axio had been developing a lot of projects in the U.S., but where we really hit it big was we had acquired a development company and merged them into our team uh, in Ontario, Canada. And so we did have some wins in the U.S., but but where we really hit it big was in Ontario, Canada and the feed and tariff markets there. So, you know, when a window opened there where they accepted a lot of projects, all of a sudden we went to having a whole bunch of, you know, somewhat mature development projects in Ontario to having 140 megawatts of projects that looked like they were definitely in line to get feed and tariff contracts. I mean, we were awarded, you just need to go through the process of, you know, finishing and building them. And so that, that really was the start of, you know, real interest in the industry in, in acquiring Axio. So we went through a number of, you know, potential acquirers and, you know, that process is always long and arduous and there's bumps in the road. But the turning point really was that, Brian Jackalik was one of the original kind of co-founders of Sun Edison. By this time, he was kind of ready to leave, right? They had been acquired by MEMC and he ran the North American business for a long time. And then, you know, he was kind of like, okay, great. This has been fun. I'm ready to, you know, go do something else. And Ahmad uh, came to him and said, look, don't leave. You know, we really want to make this strong move. We've been strong in commercial solar we're now starting to move into utility scale solar and, and some of our really good BD guys have just, without even development assets, they've just gone and gotten contracts with some of the utilities for pretty big, large solar projects. But, you know, we're, we want to move into markets where we need assets like California. You need to have, you know, project development assets that are mature. You can't just go cut a deal with the utilities. You know, Ahmad basically said to Brian, look, here's a blank checkbook. Let's go acquire some project development companies. Wow. He put together a SWAT team that just started dropping in on companies and, and started doing the work. Sunison made a strong move to come in and, and get this deal done. And, and there's always complications in every deal, but this one certainly had some. You know, that's what got us going. And, you know, Kevin and Tim took on a lot of leadership for North America and Sunison business. And Shortly after they closed the Axio Power acquisition, they also closed the Photo Audio Renewable Ventures portfolio and, and team, which also had stellar management and, and team. Rockstar with, developers. Yeah, guys like Mark McClanahan and you know all these other guys. So all the Ontario projects, they all got built and uh, profitably for Sinus and, and a lot of the Photo Audio projects got built profitably. So Sinusin really, you know, made a strong move in the you know early 2010s. Were you aware as an employee of Axio that the sale process was going on? Like how far along was it? that you became aware like, oh, we're trying to get sold. Yeah, that's something that I think I want to credit Tim Derrick and Kevin Christie on this is that those guys were so good at being authentic and professional and really trying to do things the right way. I mean, we were a really small team, right? So everybody knew everything that was going on. 
but I, you know, I got a chance to contribute to, you know, the due diligence process and they would keep us updated on the conversations that were happening. And I mean, I remember sitting on the beach one day, we were all, you know, we'd all gone surfing that afternoon and with one potential acquirer, we thought the deal was done, done. Like we heard, okay, great. Yeah. You know, it's, it's done. Wow. But that deal didn't end up going through, but you know, so I was fortunate to be a part of it. And, and Tim and, and Kevin were, were great at, you know, as needed, you know, bringing in the whole team to help support the process. How long did you stick around at Sun Edison? Was that a while? I want to be very candid about this because I think this is something that I don't want to be too much a revisionist history here. <laughs> you know, Sun Edison went through a lot of acquisitions and then an inevitable period of, you know, various layoffs where they just had, you mm. know, they were too bloated with too many people and, yeah. and they were not making enough money. And so a little over a year after the acquisition, you know, one of the rounds of layoffs, you know, they let me go. And I think, you know, for me, it was, I had left actually the team that I was on. I had left the Axie Power team because... I'd been working on these, you know, Axial Power utility scale project development projects. And we were, we were three, four years into a lot of these projects and still two plus years away from actual construction. Uh, and I was mm-hmm. like, man, I'd love to actually see something get built. Right. So I looked at Sun Edison and, and saw that they had, a, you know, a lot of sales background and, and DG, large rooftop background. And I, I wanted to move into that side of the business. So I got some great experience working with a great team. Who were you working underneath in the DG side? Yeah. So I was working with like Sam Unizade and, uh, and his team, uh, you know, they, they put together a really strong team that was doing a lot of government projects and a lot of school districts and, you know, all, all sorts of different projects. Water like districts, that. So, et cetera, yeah. Exactly. You know, I left shortly thereafter and, you know, those, those things are never easy, but, yeah. uh, you know, they handled it really well. And, I kind of took some time and, and kind of evaluated, you know, do I want to stay in solar? Do I want to move to like EV charging? Mm. I ended up interviewing for a role back then. It was still really early for uh, NRG EV Go when they were literally just starting to expand to California. They kind of started this thing like in Texas and out of the NRG hub and, you know, almost went there. And a little while later, the Chint guys, you know, gave me a call. So that was a cold call. Just want to make it was inbound. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Tell me a little bit about that because uh, we, you know, I've gotten to know Ed. I have a lot of respect for what they've grown, but at the time, like nobody knew who Chint was. And here you are coming out of a huge success, a little bit of, uh, of road rash from Sun Edison being caught up in uh, downsizing. How do you make a decision to go back, not just to go work for a Chinese company, which, you know, the optics on that might not have been the same today as they are back then, but also just to go back in the product side of the business? Yeah, definitely. So, Ed and Casey are some of the smartest guys in the power electronics industry. They're a a tag team dynamic duo that is really pretty impressive. So, you know, when they reached out to me, yeah, I initially was definitely very little hesitant. I mean, you know, Chinese company, you know, working on the product side, I don't know, is this going to be like just selling a widget and all that stuff. So I went and I chatted with them and I I met with them and we had some really interesting conversations and the, the conversation at the time was around the transition that the inverter industry, the entire architecture of solar projects was changing at the time. And they were really visionary in where this was going and what their strategy was. And that really was the selling point for me. So Ed led Advanced Energy's entrance and created the whole Advanced Energy moving into becoming a solar inverter manufacturer. He led that business from 2008 to 2011. Casey was up in Bend, Oregon and was, was one of the early guys at PV Powered, an early uh, inverter manufacturer that, that got a lot of success. And Advanced Energy acquired PV Powered. And Ed and Casey start working together. And then, 
you know, around the time that 2011-ish when, uh, when they sort of felt like Advanced Energy's management wasn't properly, I think, valuing the opportunity and, and doing the right things strategy-wise to capitalize on the solar side of their business, which had been growing like crazy, Ed and Casey kind of left and they formed their own embedded management consulting firm called Invect. And they kind of looked around at the inverter market and they, you know, started talking to different parties. They went and talked to Chint and, and they said, you know, what are you guys doing on the, the North American market? And they said, well, you know, we're building a 100 kilowatt central and a 250 kilowatt central and a 500 kilowatt central. And they said, okay, well, you know, why are you doing that? I said, well, you know, because that's what everybody else has, right? Classic Chinese thinking is just kind of like, okay, we'll just do it cheaper, right? We'll just do it cheaper and we'll come in and we'll get market share because we have a same product, roughly equal quality and it'll be cheap and it'll be great. And Ed and Casey just said, guys, like, no, like that's not where this thing is going. You know, you need to go three-phase string, distributed architecture. You need to bet literally the whole R&D farm on three-phase string, Unfortunately, because they were operating in Europe and Europe went three-phase string long before the U.S. did, Chint had a 20 kilowatt, at the time it was 600 volt DC, and you know, they had a, a good 20 kilowatt unit that had won some awards for design and had you know, gotten some traction. And they said, look, bring this thing to the U.S., get it UL certified, let's start building the whole product line off this three-phase string, you know, we'll go from there. And to Chint's credit, they listened and they literally bet their whole R&D farm on three-phase string for North America. It should be noted really quickly that at the time, no one was using, in Europe it was different, but in the US, no one was using string inverters for anything above, call it seven kilowatts SMA. Nobody thought that string inverters should be used in central plants or, or even commercial plants. And Chint is unknown in North America a titan in China, 10th largest electrical company, not just the 10th largest in a niche, like 10th largest electrical service products company in China, <laughs> like multi, multi-billion dollar government-backed company that could do anything they wanted, right? This was, this was a very small segment for them. How does that then for you convert as a sales guy into market presence, strategy? What did you learn uh, going from a predominantly American sort of work style to working with a Chinese company? How much did you learn around sales in particular, given that it's for a Chinese company, it's a new product, et cetera? I'd love to hear a little bit about how you as an entrepreneurial student thought through that with Ed and Casey. Again, that was why I was willing to take the opportunities was because I wouldn't have done it if I thought we were only going to be competing on cost and we weren't. We were competing on differentiation in the product and the architecture and telling a story around this is why you want to move to a distributed architecture right. and this is all the benefits and let's have a broader conversation about how we design solar plants, what the benefit of that is for O&M, for lowest cost of, of operating, for you know, for easy, ease of design and installation. I mean, there's just, there's so many, you know, yeah. things to go into there. Not like, Hey, I'm calling, I have the same thing that everybody else has and it's, it's a good price, you know? So yeah. that, that wouldn't have been interesting to me. So we had a lot of great conversations, you know, they had some early wins. When I came in, they had just started working with Sun Edison. It was very early for Chan. I mean, they'd been at it selling product for about 18 months, selling this 20 kilowatt three-phase string inverter. And we were just about to release our thousand volt product line uh, right when I joined. And then we, we launched that. We just hit the road and we focused on the top, you know, 50 companies, CNI developers in the country. So 
myself and Ed and Casey and, and one of our East Coast guys, we went in and we, we took down, you know, SoCore Energy, who is doing these, you know, massive retail uh, rollouts of every Target store in Nevada and every Target store in North Carolina. And, and then, you know, NRG, you know, we, we took them down and, and we did literally every Kaiser health facility in the state of California. I want to just pause for a second because at the risk of folks not understanding kind of what was happening at the macro level, like this was the first real rollout of DG SoCore, which was just mentioned, which was pre-acquisition of SoCore by SoCal Edison or Edison International. Ed and Casey are genius, but they weren't oracles in the sense they said, we're going to change the game. They saw an opportunity to bring someone else into the game. So for those of you doing your homework, Kyle went to Chint out of Sun Edison in 2013. Earlier in the year, we mentioned that Ed was at Advanced Energy Earlier in the year, Advanced had acquired a European company that focused exclusively on string inverters, a company called Refusol. So Ed and Casey literally were reading from the playbook of their at the, at now now sort of nemesis, the company they were leaving and who who, who they had intended to say, we are going to eat your lunch. You're too big. Like this is this acquisition is going to go badly for you. Like and I'm reading on the outside looking in again. But how much of that Advanced Energy Refusol business fueled the conversation for you guys where you could just kind of sweep in and say, yeah, and they're going to screw it up. You really need to let us handle this for you. Well, not, not, not they're going to, they're going to screw it up. Unfortunately they did screw it up. And that's <laughs> honestly how we want a ton of deals is that, you know, AE advanced energy was the safe choice as a supplier for all these big companies. And they went, you know, Sun Edison and everybody else went with that solution yeah. as well as it was power one yep, um, now ABB. Yeah. People don't recognize these names perhaps now because right. back in the day, right. These were like advanced energy was the number one market leader for right. utility. Power one was arguably second only to, I think SMA PV powered was neck and neck with at the time. It was like Xantrex SMA PV powered for anything under a hundred kilowatts advanced energy and SACCON for anything over a hundred kilowatts, pretty much. So all these suppliers, you know, started with the safe decision to go with, you know, an AE or a power one, right. They all dropped the ball. And this is again, where Ed and Casey's, they have this relentless serve the customer mentality Mm. and they will literally bend over backwards, you know, go the extra mile. They won't wait until you're, you know, you're really pissed about something because you're not responding fast enough. They will say, okay, we recognize there may be an issue here, you know, because stuff comes up, right? It's construction, it's power electronics, it's complicated. And they will immediately jump on, okay, we're going to work with you. We're going to find a solution. We're going to improve the product. We're going to fix, you know, everything, you know, we'll take care of it. And that won them a tremendous amount of loyalty with their customers. I can imagine. Now, how did they wag the dog a bit? I mentioned I wanted to hear how your experience was working for a Chinese company. You effectively were working for an American company inside of a Chinese company with Ed and and Casey. But tell me about your experience there before we move on to grad school. Yeah, I mean... Honestly, I was relatively sheltered from the Chinese operations. You know, Ed and Casey would go over there a couple times a year and work with the team to make sure that the next round of product development and cycles was was well dialed in. I almost had a trip, you know, to the factory, which the Chint factory in Shanghai is a complex. I mean, it is massive. It is many buildings. They do all sorts of stuff from, you know, 50 and 100 MVA transformers for utility projects all over the world to, you know, little light switches here and there, you know, just everything. So, you know, they really did a great job and they really let me focus on, hey, be everywhere in the Western US, yeah. be at every, you know, conference. Uh, they gave me a lot of room to, you know, get on panels and speak and and share what we were doing and our vision and 
and then just, you know, make those connections with people and get in and, and go visit customers and go, go get onto a construction site and see our equipment getting installed and listen to them. And, you know, what do they say about yeah. what they like or don't like and all that stuff. So it was great. You're how old when you started at Gent? Uh, 2013. So like, uh, 27 ish, 27. And you get now the chance to be the point person selling into Sun Edison, Green Skies, Socor, all these big accounts. How did you position yourself as a relatively young but experienced salesperson in a way to carry those accounts credibly? Tell me about that experience for you. Even I'd love the insight into maybe the self-doubt, maybe some of the self-talk that you had to overcome. Well, that's this kind of funny thing, right? It's like, I remember that first conversation with Casey as he's, you know, talking about a distributed architecture for CNI projects, whereas, you know, the, previously when, when, when I joined, almost all the big CNI projects were, you know, a 500 kilowatt central inverter and a bunch of panels connected to it, as many blocks of that as you can do. And I was like, yeah, I literally know nothing about power electronics and the way that it works. But I would say I was always hungry to learn, right? I was never one of those guys who was like, I'm never going to know anything about that because I'm not, you know, an engineer. I'm not, you know, not going to know that stuff. I was always like, okay, cool. Let me learn that. You know, let me, let me know how to use the string sizing tool so I can help customers provide them technical support. You know, let me learn every single bit about why they would want to use this product. And so pretty quickly customers know whether or not you're faking it and whether or not you have relevant things to talk about with their business or if you're just spewing BS about, you know, nothing that they're really not interested in. Do you feel like it helped that you developed large scale projects? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, certainly I think that the experience doing larger projects and, and working at some of these big companies was something that people were interested in and, and that, um, you know, can talk a lot about and, mm -hmm. and things like that. I try to paint the picture for folks that for the most part in your 20s, it's really healthy to have this ebb and flow. Big company, small company, big company, small company, and it almost entirely benefits you early in your career to spend time unless you just are so fortunate or you're on the computer science side, like spend time at a very large company that will invest in your growth. And, you know, you had the opposite experience where you stepped into an entrepreneurial opportunity that ended up landing you in a gigantic corporation that sort of parlayed into another giant corporation. But I want to emphasize that I look at what you were able to accomplish at Chint, which is not insignificant. I mean, you slayed it from a product sales perspective, like you walked in at the right time. Again, it was one of those fortuitous things in your career, saying yes to the right opportunity. But you had to have that filter and then getting into the opportunity itself, the ability to be a continuous learner, right? To not take for granted that you know something, but to be able to present with confidence, hey, what I don't know, I can get the answer to you for. And what I've done in the past informs my ability to consult you through this problem or at least to understand what you're going through. Yeah. We've talked about you're an entrepreneur at heart. At some point, you're stuck in this big company. You're selling a product. My sense is you get a little stir crazy. You get a little anxious. You're thinking, what's next? How do you address that sensation? I believe you're married at the time now, right? Yeah, yeah, I got married two weeks after graduation from college. So, oh right, so I was married through this whole uh, this whole thing. So, wow. I don't know if I would say I was necessarily stir crazy. I was really enjoying Chint. I had no interest in doing the MBA as like a check the box, climb the corporate ladder thing. Like, if it was just like a standard MBA program, like I'm not interested. I, I have no doubt, you know, I can continue moving up without you know that sort of checking the box. As you know, I'm I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter and. I was actually conversing with the CEO of one of the companies that I had won, which was actually a pretty big win with uh, Calcom Solar. 
Alcom doing tons of big one megawatt ground mount projects throughout the Central Valley, California for tons of big farmer operations. And I'd, I'd won them as a customer at Chint and uh, was talking with their CEO on, on Twitter. And I saw that he, he posted something about the Babson MBA program. And I was like, what are you talking about the Babson MBA program that you know, you're in? He's like, you're in California. You know, that's in Boston. I had known ba- Babson because, again, the backstory on me was that I learned about entrepreneurship, the concept, when I was 14. So I, I'd been invited on a trip to Italy with an entrepreneur who had three franchise businesses. And he brought along his sister who had been the franchisor of those businesses. And this was her third successful franchising business that she had started. And so I literally spent two weeks just running around Italy on trains and buses and planes talking with, you know, these people and going, you know, my dad was corporate his whole life. He was 30 years at Acura Honda and the car business. And uh-huh you know, big ideas guy, but always stayed in the corporate stuff. So I was like, wow, like entrepreneurship is, is where it's at. Like, that's exciting. So I had knew that I wanted to study entrepreneurship for undergrad. And I basically said, okay, Babson's number one, small school focused almost exclusively on entrepreneurship in Boston. I didn't want to go East coast. Number two was university of Arizona, Tucson's a great college towns, great location, big school, big sports, big everything. I was like, cool, that, that's perfect. And it worked out great as, as, uh, as we heard for me. But I was like, what, what are you talking about Babson MBA? Like you're, you're in, in California. And he goes, yeah, they just opened a campus in downtown San Francisco. Fantastic. And they're doing an MBA program. You know, it's one of these blended learning things where you can, you can keep working while you, you, uh, you go combination in-person classes and, and online. And I was like, oh, wow. Like I, had the opportunity. Like, I, I definitely was itching to write another business plan and right. to start another business. Yeah. And so I said, okay, this is perfect, right? I don't know what I want to start yet, but I want to get back into starting businesses and, and long-term wanting to be investing in businesses. And so I pretty quickly got started into the MBA program there. And Ed and Casey were incredibly supportive. They're like, look, this is great. You know, come on up to visit the Bay Area office, do some work and, you know, then go to your classes and, and all that stuff. So, Oh, that's sweet. So at the same time you were at CPS and going to Babson and supporting your family, trying to figure out where does this, where does this go? I see. So having been married while I was in grad school as well, my wife helping support me, did you make any uh, particular pact with your wife there? You're, you're working full time. Like what's yeah. the, you're going to Babson, uh, which is famously known for entrepreneurship. <laughs> That's right. You know, I, 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 of course, I had to kind of sell her on this idea. And it was like, I'm going to work. And the work is high. You know, there's a lot of travel. I was on the road almost every other week. Yeah. You know, so I already was away from my wife a lot. And that, you know, t- takes a toll on any family and relationship. And then I said, oh, you know, and I also want to do this MBA at, you know, nights and weekends and be gone even more. And I said, you know, the only reason I want to do this is because I want to start another business. So this is a great opportunity. And she said, okay, you know, I, I can get on board with, you know, two years of, you know, you're, you're going to be really busy. We're not going to have as much time together. But she said, you know, but you cannot also start a business while you're in the MBA. You know, fast forward a year later, I'm halfway through the MBA. The capstone project, the, you know, literally the final three months of the program is literally, you know, form a team, write a business plan, you know, right. make a pitch, you know, all this stuff. It's like, man, what am I going to do for that? I, you know, I got to figure this out. At this point, I had started actually investing in some solar software startups. So I had, you know, taken some of the leftover monies from the Axio sale and had started placing some investments. One actually in, in Paul Grana's company with uh, Helioscope. I 
I met uh, the Pauls pretty early and they were still in beta and, and they were, they were raising their very first round of outside capital and mostly just kind of friends and family and, and angel money. And, and I just, you know, looked at the business and SaaS model and, and all that. And I said, okay, this is, this is really interesting. What you're, what you're building is interesting. At the time, there were no, really no good online cloud-based solar design tools. And, uh, you know, even just to use PV Syst, you had to be fairly technically competent. You know, made an investment with them. I think that was 2014. And then uh, Utility API was the other one that I was, I was really excited to meet Daniel and Elena when they were literally just getting going. They were also still in beta when I met them and uh, invested with them. So, you know, going to different kind of startup events and the DOE held what they called a, a jamathon for the Sunshot Catalyst program that they were running. And it was at Powerhouse. So I'd, I'd gotten to know Emily pretty well, you know, the whole Powerhouse team and, and all that they were doing. And as I was, you know, trying to think about what did I want to start as my company, you know, I went to this jamathon and, you know, just you know, threw out some ideas of some things I was thinking about. Had, you know, one guy stood up that I knew and, and said, hey, that's interesting. Let's talk about that. And then I grabbed one of my, my MBA colleagues. So it was like, I got back from that. And like two weeks later, this submission deadline for the Department of Energy Sunshot Catalyst was due. And it was like, okay, I got finals week coming up. I was actually going on a church trip to the Middle East immediately after finals was over. Mm-hmm. I had all this stuff I was preparing for, but I also like there was this opportunity to submit a concept, a really quick business plan to the Department of Energy. And so I just literally put something together in you know a couple of days, a concept and, you know, submitted it to DOE thinking, you know, look, I'll submit it. I'll go do my finals week. I'll go to the Middle East and we'll see what happens. Right. And sure enough, I come back and find out that we won. We got awarded uh, an initial grant. Now I have to basically say to my wife, hey, you know how I said I wouldn't start a business while I was mid MBA? I sort of did. And the next round, you know, if we win the next round, we get a even bigger, you know, fairly large. Sum of money. Exactly. So, and so this is the, all the premise for Solar Merchant. Tell me a bit about what Solar Merchant was. I was working at Chint and, you know, feeding all these, these large CNI developers with projects. And, you know, we were almost exclusively focused on finding uh, these large customers who had a, a significant pipeline of projects. But as you know, you and many others know, the, the CNI business is, is very, it's very split up. There's a lot of small developers kind of everywhere doing all this sort of stuff. And, and it's just a very uh, fragmented market. You know, if you're a business owner, there's not like a single company that is a no-brainer to call if you want a CNI installation on your, there's no national player really. Around this time, I had gotten to know the Pick My Solar guys. And they were about two years in to Pick My Solar and really only about 12 months into having a working product in the marketplace. And they had set up a marketplace for homeowners to get many bids for solar. And my original, original concept around Solar Merchant that I originally submitted to DOE was a little bit more focused on how do we solve the tenant landlord problem in CNI where you've got, you know, say strip malls, you got all these tenants with five-year contracts and, you know, owner owns the real estate and they own the roof really. And, and they, you know, they don't pay the power bill, so they're not incentivized to put solar on, but the, you know, the, the, the tenant doesn't have a long-term lease, so they can't sign a 20-year PPA. And so was focused on that and then, you know, got to know the Pick My Solar guys and I said, you know, they said, hey, you know, we're collecting commercial leads just sort of organically, but we're not doing anything with them because we're not focused on commercial. We sort of did an early partnership where we just said, okay, you know, here, you take the commercial leads and you can kind of use these as some of your beta projects to, as you start to put together your business plan, you know, use these as customers you can work on. 
so we, we did that. And then I said, okay, well, clearly there's a need for a similar pick my solar style product in commercial where make it really dead simple to, you know, submit the information needed in order to get a quick quote, get multiple bids, have an independent energy advisor whose only interest is in getting the customer the best deal for them, you know, advise the customer, walk them through the bid differences and help them make a selection. And so that's really what we kind of transitioned in the next round of the DOE Sunshine Catalyst was to be more of like a, a marketplace for commercial solar projects. And that netted you, which you won, another hundred grand. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. so, so here you are, you're wrapping up grad school, you're full-time at Chint, and all of a sudden you're saddled with a hundred thousand grant from the Sunshot for this business that you weren't supposed to be starting. How do you make a decision there around where your priority lies? Yeah. So at this point, you know, my wife and I had some really good conversations about, you know, do you want to be a number one? And by a number mm-hmm. one, I mean, do you think you are, you know, founding CEO, right. Jeff Bezos, right. Elon Musk, Bill Gates type, it's going to be completely on you for a company and potentially for employees and for, you know, getting everything going from grinding from the start of a business. And that is really an amazing question for your wife to ask you. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's a pretty intuitive lady and, uh, and pretty smart. And so, you know, we, we sort of agreed that realistically that wasn't what I felt like were my strengths. If nothing else, I knew that I needed, you know, to find some team members that had complementary skills. Well, thanks for checking out this episode, Solar Warriors. If you liked this interview, then you'll definitely want to stay tuned in on Tuesday as we wrap up the conversation with Kyle Cherick. And for sure, next Thursday is a not to miss as we have a real blockchain expert on the show, Nick Gogarty of SolarCoin. Hope to see you then. And I also hope to see you at InnerSolar in San Francisco. Don't forget that if you're going to be there, you are cordially invited to come to the networking event I'm co-hosting with Green Power Global on the 9th. That's Monday evening. You can get all the details and register at mysuncast.com. While I still have your attention, I'd like to say thank you yet again. The fact that you're still listening means you really enjoy the work that we're bringing to life. If that's true, would you please consider becoming a member of the Suncast Energy Tribe? Every week now, we are getting new members joining as Patreon monthly subscribers, as well as annual members. You can join them. You just need to go to mysuncast.com forward slash member to see what the benefits are. I look forward to formally welcoming you into the tribe as well, my friend. And thanks again for showing up. It is half the battle.